Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida. And now your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, where today we are privileged to have back with us Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of Darwin's Doubt, which has come out now in a paperback edition with the bonus of a new chapter, the epilogue chapter, which is a long-awaited response to critics of the first edition. And I'm so excited that Dr. Stephen Meyer was able to join us with this fantastic uh, book. It's a gorgeous, uh, isn't it, Bill Carl? Mm-hmm. It's just fantastic. Uh, soft back edition with all the same color plates that are uh, just uh, representing the Qingjiang fossils. Have you ever seen more amazing wow. pictures of these Cambrian critters? Uh, we are really privileged to have uh, one of the world's leading experts on the Cambrian explosion with us today by phone uh, from his office in Washington State. Uh, thank you, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Tom. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, shedding light last week on some of the interaction that you've had with some of the uh, both uh, science uh, and technical experts who are on your side, which uh, are, are legion. I would say many, many uh, experts have given kudos. I'm reading the back where Dr. George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, author of Regenesis, says, quote, Darwin's doubt represents an opportunity for bridge building rather than dismissive polarization. Bridges across cultural divides in great need of professional, respectful dialogue and bridges to span evolutionary gaps. A very interesting statement from Dr. George Church. Uh, The uh, comment also from Dr. Mark McMenamin, uh, paleontologist at Mount Holyoke College and co-author of uh, The Emergence of Animals, says, It is hard for us paleontologists, steeped as we are in a tradition of Darwinian analysis, to admit that neo-Darwinian explanations for the Cambrian explosion have failed miserably. New data acquired in recent years, instead of solving Darwin's dilemma, have rather made it worse. And then Dr. McMenamin adds, Meyer, Meyer describes the dimensions of the problem of clarity and precision. His book is a game-changer, for the study of evolution and points us in the right direction as we seek a new theory for the origin of animals. Ringing, strong, and cogent words from Dr. Mark McMenamin. I was really fascinated to read, uh, again, as I was reading the book for the second time, his comments in a number of the chapters. You must have put an incredible number of hundreds of hours in researching this book. Uh, must have been a very uh, golden and, and happy moment when you finished the writing of it, something on the order of a year and a half ago. Yeah, it was it was a monstrous effort. I was really fortunate to have um, the opportunity to synthesize a lot of the cutting-edge research of, of my colleagues at Discovery Institute and at our lab, the Biologic Institute. I had uh, chapters uh, featuring and describing the work of, of some of my colleagues, such as Douglas Axe, the, the protein scientist and molecular biologist, uh, Paul Nelson and Jonathan Wells, who work in developmental biology, uh, and, and others, Ann Gager, uh, Mike Behe, uh, all of whom have done research that has, in one way or another, uh, brought 
critical um, raise raise critical questions about the creative power of the the Darwinian mechanism of mutation and selection, and of course beyond my own colleagues here, there's a wealth of uh, information in the biological literature from people working even in the field of evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology in which uh, leading scientists are raising questions about um, especially the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism. So one of the themes of the book is that there's a huge disparity between the public presentation of the theory in biological textbooks and by people like Richard Dawkins or Eugenie Scott at the National Center for Science Education on the one hand, and the actual status of the theory as you find it in the peer-reviewed literature where you have people... Um, not dogmatically affirming the theory, but raising really significant critical questions about it. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was was show why that is the case, why scientists are skeptical about the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism. And the Cambrian explosion is perhaps the most dramatic example of the origin of biological form. It's the most dramatic example of what scientists sometimes call macroevolution, where you have major innovations in the history of life, and it's precisely those major innovations that natural selection and random mutation don't explain well. And so one of the real exciting things about writing the book was the ability to synthesize a lot of work that other people have done to expose the deficiencies in that mechanism and to show that there really is a very significant crisis in contemporary evolutionary theory. With us today, Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of Darwin's Doubt. Dr. Meyer, I've had many people compare your book in kind of a kind of a friendly uh, comparison with uh, Charles Darwin's own book, The Origin of Species, in the sense that his book was long, one long argument, his own attempted synthesis of many diverse streams of, of data and, and analysis, uh, starting biology in a particular direction. And uh, some people, I think, have I think rightly observed that. Your book is like a, a course. It's like taking a biology course without having to pay the tuition. <laughs> if you, it's like a. Well, I, I, I'm obviously flattered by the, the comparison, and I don't know if it's, if it's justified, but hmm. I have learned a lot from Darwin. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really admired, uh, uh, admire about Darwin's work is that, uh, that he did formulate his scientific theory as an argument. Hmm. That is to say, he brought a, a number of strands of evidence together and tried to show that his theory of descent with modification was the best explanation for a wide array of different evidence and data. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very scientific approach. There's a wonderful Italian uh, philosopher of science named Marcello Opera, who says that science advances as scientists argue about how to interpret the the evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, too oftentimes, especially in our biology textbooks, we don't present the arguments that have been made in favor of different interpretations or theories. We just present theories to students as a kind of fait accompli. In fact, Darwin's theory itself is presented that way, and I think that a lot is lost in that translation, because if you understand the arguments for a theory, then that allows you the possibility to deliberate about whether or not you think it's true, mm-hmm. and, and it allows you to uh, open your mind to the possibility of counter-arguments, mm-hmm. and I think that's the way science progresses, is that we weigh competing interpretations of evidence and we also have to adjust our theories and ideas in light of new evidence. And, of course, so much in my case depends upon things that Darwin didn't know about. He didn't know about the digital code that is stored in the DNA molecule or the circuits made of, of genes and gene products that control how animals are, are produced and developed from embryo to adult form or the informational hierarchies that are involved in, in the formation of, of animal life. 
And I think all of these, these new discoveries provide compelling evidence for intelligent design. So mm. while I use a Darwinian approach to arguing my case, and also I use Darwin's own method of scientific reasoning to make my case, he's using a very distinctively historical method of scientific reasoning, I do come to a, a, a non-Darwinian conclusion. I think there's evidence of real design, not just the appearance of design in the history of life. Okay, again, uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of Darwin's Doubt, now out in uh, a special paperback edition with an added chapter. This is kind of the bonus. Uh, you actually get a better price, but with a, a new chapter, epilogue, responses to critics of the first edition of Darwin's Doubt, which came out just about a year ago. This new edition has just been out just a few days, and it's available everywhere on the Internet. Our own website, apologetics.org, carries this very, very important book. And uh, it is the most important book, I would argue, in the history of the creation, intelligent design, Darwinian evolution debate that has ever been produced. I'll go ahead and weigh in on that. Uh, we were last week covering uh, some of these uh, kind of responses that have come out, the sub- substantive ones from Nick Matsky, who brought out cladistics, and we handled that very well. And, of course, you can consult uh, on our website, apologetics.org. We'll have the connection to the podcast for that. Let's talk about the comments and the, and the discussions, even the debate that arose with Charles Marshall. First of all, we have just uh, like a little over a minute here. Tell us, uh, before we have to take a break, uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who is Charles Marshall, and what was the key thing that came up in your debate with him at the U.K.? Well, uh, Marshall is a really first-rate Cambrian expert. He's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, uh, I would say one of the top five uh, experts on the Cambrian explosion. He's a paleontologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I was delighted to see his review. It was critical. It was mildly complimentary in, of, of some aspects of the book. He said it was well-written and that my my scholarship in the first third dealing with the paleontology was very accurate, but he he attempted, unlike all the other reviewers, to refute the main argument of the book, and and he took he took on my claim that intelligent design provides the best explanation for the origin of the information, the genetic information that's needed to build new forms of animal life, and and so as an author, I was thrilled to find finally a review that was addressing the main argument of the book. And he published this review in Science, which is uh, the, the, the most prominent science journal in the United States, uh, with its counterpart Nature in the United Kingdom, uh, is the most prominent journal there. So he got a lot of exposure, and he took on the key argument. And and for that, I'm I'm really grateful. I think it, it made it, it advanced the debate, and uh, we subsequently had a debate on UK radio. So uh, uh, I, w- I was grateful to see that review, even though his, his overall verdict was negative. Yeah. Okay. And of course, that's going to be the the nub or the rub of the uh, discussion that we're going to bring out uh, here after we have to take a quick break on the universe next door. Uh, this is one of the most exciting topics you could ever talk about in origins. Uh, the discussion of where we came from. Today with us, Dr. Steve Meyer, author of Darwin's Doubt, with a new bonus chapter, the epilogue, Response to Critics. We'll be right back with Dr. Meyer after a quick break on The Universe Next Door. The Universe. 
Reverse Next Door broadcast is a great starting point for your investigation into the world of apologetics. But when you want to go deeper, start with the official website of the C.S. Lewis Society, apologetics.org. Shop at the apologetics.org online store for books, videos, and other media that can take you deeper into the universe next door while supporting the mission of the C.S. Lewis Society. Dig deeper today at apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Welcome back to The Universe Next Door, focusing on questions of life, faith, and worldview. With your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to The Universe Next Door. And today, again with us, Dr. Stephen Meyer. He is the director of the Center for Science and Culture uh, which is the arm of the Discovery Institute, which seeks to do research and also uh, is involved in uh, education and advising uh, people in the highest levels of the United States in both government and education uh, in the area of science uh, and research. Uh, wise, I think that uh, we need to take our hats off to the Discovery Institute for their work through the Biologic Institute, where Dr. Doug Axe, Dr. Richard Sternberg, Dr. Ann Gager, and so many other fine scientific minds are working uh, day and night to uh, really supply the evidence uh, from their lab research to test and to expand on the concepts of intelligent design. Uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer, uh, his uh, work is well known. He is the author of many uh, books and articles, but especially the book The Signature in the Cell, which came out in 2009 and won many uh, premier awards and recognitions. And now, of course, just a year ago, Darwin's Doubt, which has just been released in a paperback edition with an added chapter, the epilogue chapter. Dr. Stephen Meyer, many people have have probably you know come to you and said, well, intelligent design, just a religious idea. I know that you've handled this so many times, and they, they would say, well, this is God of the gaps. The more we learn... You know, the more we'll figure out what happened, just give us more time. What would you say when people say, give us more time? Well, the the argument isn't a God of the gaps argument. It's not an argument from what logicians call, it's not an argument from ignorance, as logicians term it. Mm-hmm. It's an argument based upon what we know about the cause and effect structure of the world. Uh, what I What I do in the book is I show that the crucial question that needs to be explained when we're accounting for the origin of new forms of animal life is the origin of information. I used to ask my students a question, if you want to give your computer a new function, what do you have to give it? And they would immediately realize you have to give it code or instructions or information. And the same thing is true in life. If you want to build a new form of animal life, the, the evolutionary process would need to generate a lot of new uh, digital information in DNA, and now we know other forms of information as well, which are called epigenetic information. Um, that raises a problem. What explains the origin of that information? Mm-hmm. I show in the book that the mutation natural selection mechanism and other similarly undirected materialistic processes do not account for the origin of information for various reasons. Instead, but, in, but we do know of a cause which is capable of generating new information, and that cause is intelligence or mind. In fact, whenever we see information and we trace it back to its source, in whatever form we find it, whether it's in a hieroglyphic inscription or a section of software or a, a paragraph in a book, whenever we see information and trace it back to a source, we always come to a mind and not a material process. 
So the, the, the discovery that information is literally running the show inside living cells and that events such as the Cambrian explosion are manifesting a huge infusion of new information into the biosphere suggests that a designing intelligence has played a role in the history of life. That's the argument. But that argument is based on, number one, a standard method of scientific reasoning that Charles Darwin himself used, which is known as the method of inference to the best explanation. Uh, and I, I consciously modeled my case for intelligent design on Darwin's method of reasoning. And secondly, it's not based on ignorance. It's based on what we know about what it takes to produce information. It's based on what we know about the only cause that is capable of generating a functional digital code, and that cause is intelligence. Hmm. So it's not an argument from ignorance. It is a scientific argument. It's using the same method of scientific reasoning that Darwin himself used, and, um, and it's certainly not uh, based on um, religious texts. It's based on the evidence that we're finding in the natural world, both in paleontology, molecular biology, and um, and, and genetics. So it's based on scientific evidence. It uses a scientific method of reasoning, and it's not based on on ignorance. It's based on what we know about the cause and effect structure of the world. And if I could just weigh in on that, I think it's a telling um, support to what you just said, that so many people who are not people of any religious faith, uh, such as uh, not only Thomas Nagel, the famous atheist philosopher who has supported your work, but even David Raup, uh, the famous paleontologist, the uh, self-proclaimed atheist paleontologist at the University of Chicago, was so outstandingly supportive and openly even giving me a blurb to 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 put in a, uh, my book on Philip Johnson and allowing me to quote it to after that. Uh, so I think that we see we have a whole uh, string of, of uh, unknown atheists who have said, yes, this is a problem, and much evidence does support the other way, even though we are reluctant to admit it. So, uh, let's well, and, and, and I, you know, Nagel and Ralph both, I think, would be reluctant to affirm intelligent design, but right. they both accept that there are really serious problems with Darwinism. Mm. And, and, but there are also advocates of intelligent design who are not, are not religious. Um, there's the, you know, the agnostic uh, Michael Denton, and, and a molecular biologist from Australia, mm. and also uh, a, 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 a philosopher, Brad, Bradley Mountain, who describes himself as an atheist. Mm-hmm. He sees evidence of design. He just doesn't know mm-hmm. to what or whom to attribute it. So, right, right. Um, it's, it's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I do think the evidence for intelligent design has, has uh, larger theistic implications. I think oh, I, if you look at, mm-hmm. at all the evidence from biology as well as physics, you see, um, you see evidence of, uh, I think that it makes more sense to interpret it in the theistic framework, but other people disagree about that. Yes, so. and I think you and I, of course, would agree um, on that point very clearly. Charles Marshall, take us back again to that famous debate you had uh, through premier.org.uk, I believe is the, uh, the the station there in London that brought the two of you together. Give us a sense of what came out in that debate that you had with this critic uh, from that uh, University of California at Berkeley, uh, Professor Charles Marshall, as he tried to uh, counter your arguments. We have a couple minutes left. Well, Marshall's main argument was that um, that intelligent design doesn't represent the best explanation for the origin of the information you need to build the Cambrian animals, because you really don't need much new information to build new animal forms. He argued that our, that uh, that um, the evolutionary process could simply rewire the genetic regulatory networks that control and uh, how other genes are expressed in the process of animal development. 
And he said this in just a few words, but when I read it, I thought, um, wow, this is very exciting because he hasn't in any way refuted the main argument. He, what he actually did was presuppose prior unexplained sources of genetic information. In the book, I talk about these gene regulatory networks. They're essentially circuits formed of genes and their protein products that regulate how other genes are expressed. But gene regulatory networks are themselves repositories of genetic information. They are parts of the DNA molecule. They have information in them. Um, and they control the expression of other genes, which also are rich in genetic information. Beyond, beyond that, um, uh, to rewire a genetic regulatory mutation would require coordinated genetic mutations, which would be an, an additional input of new code. So in order to answer the argument from information that I made in the book, uh, Marshall had to presuppose three separate sources of unexplained genetic information, the information in the gene regulatory networks, the information implied by rewiring the, the regulatory networks, and the information in other genes that the regulatory networks uh, control. So I think you don't have to be a PhD in biology to, to realize that, um, that, that Marshall was unable to refute the main argument of the book because he simply begged the question as to the origin of prior unexplained genetic information. He assumed the point at issue, which is, where does all that genetic information come from? He just assumed that there was all, all there were all these three sources of information available, and um, without explaining where they came from. I, l I would like to read what you say on on this one page in your epilogue chapter. You're quoting Eric Davidson, who of course is probably an evolutionist, but he is a developmental biologist. He says there is always an observable consequence if a, a DGRN that's like a circuit, right? It's a subcircuit. Right, it's a circuit of genes and hmm. uh, proteins that bind to genes mm -hmm. that in turn control how other genes are turned on and turned off. So okay. it's an integrated circuit of, of genetic, controlled by genetic information. Right. Well, he says this uh, subcircuit, this is always um, an observable consequence if this subcircuit is interrupted. Since these consequences are always catastrophically bad, Flexibility is minimal, and since the subcircuits are all interconnected, the whole network partakes of the quality that there is only one way for things to work. And indeed, the embryos of each species develop in only one way. That seems to mean uh, to me that you can't meddle with them. Would you agree? It's a, it's a huge problem. First of all, it's a fascinating discovery that animal development it depends upon coordinated interactions of genes and their protein binding products that are functioning just like integrated circuits in, a, in a, on an electric uh, in an electrical device wow um, and uh, and what we have found is that like our integrated circuits you can't mess with them hmm. you can't perturb them without catastrophic consequences and this is a major problem of the neo -Dar to the Darwinian mechanism that I explained because if you if you need these animal uh, these developmental gene regulatory networks to build new animals so to build a new animal, you need a new form of, of circuitry. But you can't change the old circuitry without destroying it, without destroying animal development and shutting down the evolutionary process. So it raises a question of how you ever get from one form of animal life to another if, in fact, you need these, these, uh, these circuits of genes, which we know from experiments that you do need. Hmm. So um, what, what Marshall proposes is that back in the Precambrian, these circuits could have somehow been more flexible and allowed perturbation, allowed mutation, but that's contrary to everything we know from mm -hmm. the experimental evidence. Mm -hmm. And the, the Darwin's maxim, based on 
you know, the, the, uh, the principle of uniformitarianism mm. is that the present is the key to the past. What we know in the present from our, uh, from our experiments and observations right. of how animals uh, live and work should guide our theorizing about what happened in the past. What Marshall does is reverse that priority and say, well, our, our evolutionary theory about what must have happened in the past should, should revise what we know from our experiments about what actually does happen. And I think that's a, a violation of some very basic principles of scientific method and epistemology. We need to let the experimental evidence determine what's plausible for our evolutionary theories, not fit the, the, theory, not fit the theory or fit the evidence to the requirements of the theory. Hmm. And, and I took him to task for that as well. Very good. As begging a question about the origin of information. Well, this has been a delightful conversation with Dr. Stephen Meyer. I would say do not walk, run to your source, whether it be a bookstore or your portal to the Internet, to order your copy of Darwin's Doubt, the new paperback edition with the added chapter. It's the fantastic epilogue in which Stephen Meyer has an opportunity to respond to his critics. This is one of the most important sources for your understanding of evidence for intelligent design. Thank you, Dr. Stephen Meyer, and thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. 